My name is Christopher Gomes, and I serve as one of the pastors here at Hagerstown Church. And uh, I am so happy to welcome all of you, and I am sad to dismiss some of you. This is the part of our service where uh, the kids will be dismissed. Uh, so, Gray Station, I believe you are to my left. No, I'm sorry, my right, your left. Uh, ages 6 to 5th grade will be going to Gray Station. Uh, Blue Station, ages 3 to 5, you will be to your right, my left. This morning, the kids in our Gray Station, they'll be reflecting on this question, what else does Christ's death redeem? And the answer, so simple and so profound, every part of fallen creation. That is how good our God is, that he would not just redeem a portion of a sinful world, but that he would redeem all of his creation. Uh, this morning, uh, I was not expecting the, the sermon series slide to come up, um, but I'm going to retool my introduction now. Uh, we have been working through this series uh, intermittently on how to destroy a church. Now, if you're visiting with us for the first time, you might be wondering, why would you talk about something like that? Why would you spend a sermon series on that? Well, just to add to that, we haven't even actually mapped out the ending of that series, so this series might go on for a very long time. But the point that we're trying to drive home in this series, this is a topical series that we are engaging in to look at various areas and subjects that the scriptures speak of that if left unchecked or ignored or just don't pay any attention to, can and will destroy a local church. Now, we know that Jesus has promised that he will build his church and that the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. So the question we might want to ask then is, well, how can you destroy a church? Well, the answer is you can't, right? But sin that is left unchecked can tear a local congregation apart. Now, praise God, in my 14 years of being a Christian, I have not seen sin victorious in its effort to tear a local church apart. And my prayer and my earnest and sincere hope is that for the rest of my life and the rest of our lives together, we will not see local churches torn apart due to sin, but that we will see churches thriving under submission to God's word and trusting in God's promise. So this morning, we will be delving into the third sermon in this ongoing series on how to destroy a church. The subject that we'll be delving into this morning is a personal subject. It is a subject that every single one of us can and will inevitably relate to. We engage in this particular subject every day with all kinds of relationships that we have in our lives. So if you're married, you engage in this per particular area with your spouse. If you have children, you engage in this particular area with your children. If you are employed, you engage in this particular area with your supervisors and your coworkers. If you live with neighbors at some point, you will engage in this particular area over the top of the fence. We engage in the area of personal communication in every turn of our lives. If you just quickly Google search the best books on personal communication, you will find literally thousands of search result pages. It's never ending. 
uh, I uh, had looked up the best published books on personal communication, and I found one article that was just titled 100 Best Books on Personal Communication, and it was only 100. And if you looked through each of them, each uh, posting of the book would publish how many of those books uh, were ultimately sold. So millions of books times 100, the, the zeros just keep adding on. This is a subject that everybody has something to talk about. Everybody has something to say about communication. No, no pun intended. This is something that we deal with on an ongoing basis. Now, some of us deal with communication really well. Some of us not so much. But you might be wondering, what does Jesus have to do with the way I talk? Everything. Jesus has everything to do with how we speak. And that is what we're going to consider this morning in Ephesians chapter 4. Before we jump in, let me just provide a little bit of encouragement. Some of us are very self-aware. Some of us understand communication has not been our strong suit. Uh, We're gifted in various other things, but personal communication and how we relate to one another, probably not the area that we uh, excel in. Uh, There is grace for you. If you have failed in communicating well, in communicating in a way that gives grace to those who hear, there is grace for you still. God is not done with you. God has promised that he will complete the work that he began in you. And there is coming a day in which you will never, ever again speak a hurtful word or make a hurtful comment. There is coming a day when all you will speak is peace and joy and love. But until that day comes... We've got a little bit of work to do, and the scriptures will help us to continue to grow and regrow into the image of Christ. If you have failed to communicate well, and I don't mean like a really well-worded email, and I'm not talking about a good uh, voicemail recording, I mean speaking in a way, relating with others in a way that builds them up and doesn't tear them down. If you have failed to communicate well, There's no condemnation. And God invites you and me to himself. And he is willing and able to help you and I to grow to speak to others in a way that gives life. The Bible literally begins with God speaking. So this is an area and a subject that is incredibly crucial. The Bible begins with God speaking. He spoke all things into creation, which goes to show that speaking is powerful, not because you and I are really powerful, but because God is powerful. He spoke all things into creation, and he didn't stop speaking. He continued to speak with his creation. Adam and Eve are a really good example if you've not read Genesis 2 and 3. He continued to speak to his creation. If you remember in Hebrews chapter 1, uh, Pastor Josh, a few weeks ago, he uh, shared with us what the uh, opening verses in Hebrews chapter 1 say. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. God communicated something to those Jewish forefathers, to the patriarchs. God continued to communicate something. This time, in his son, 
whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. Now, this sermon will not be a personal self-help sermon. I'm going to give you a few steps, but this sermon, my prayer is going to be all about Jesus Christ building his church. You and I are made in the image of a God who communicates. He is not a God who has decided to make all things and just kind of throw it into the void of space and then turn away to turn his attention elsewhere. We are made in the image of a God who communicates. We are made to communicate to one another. And not only does God communicate uh, and speak all of creation into existence, God himself is a community. We worship a God who exists as one, one God in three persons. And we are made in the image of a relational God that speaks. So, how then should we consider how to speak? Speaking is important. It is, inevi- it is inevitable and unescapable. It does not matter how much further west you move and how much wider your acreage becomes, you will inevitably have to speak to a neighbor. The Bible is filled with warnings and instructions and encouragements on how we, as God's people, ought to speak. So, I am going to let God's word do all the talking. Let's buckle up. Psalm 19:14. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. You know what Psalm 19:14 reminds me of? That not only should my words be acceptable before the Lord, but that there may be words that I speak that are unacceptable before the Lord. Proverbs 10:19. When words are many, transgression is not lacking, but whoever restrains his lips is prudent. Proverbs 12:18. There is one whose rash words are like sword thrusts, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. Think about that. Like a sword is not small, right? So when a sword is thrusted, it cuts deep. Sword blades are long. But the tongue of the wise brings healings to deep wounds. Proverbs 12, 25. Anxiety in a man's heart weighs him down, but a good word makes him glad. Proverbs 15, verses 1 and 2. A soft answer turns away wrath. But a harsh word stirs up anger. The tongue of the wise commends knowledge, but the mouths of fools pour out folly. That's just a really interesting kind of picture there, that the mouths of a fool is like a waterfall of just more foolishness. Proverbs 15.4, a gentle tongue is a tree of life, but perverseness in it breaks the spirit. Proverbs 16.24, gracious words are like a honeycomb. Sweetness to the soul and health to the body. Proverbs 18, verses 20 and 21. From the fruit of a man's mouth, his stomach is satisfied. He is satisfied by the yield of his lips. Death and life are in the power of the tongue, and those who love it will eat its fruits. So so that's just just a sample of what the Old Testament has to say. Let me give you a sample of what the New Testament has to say. And I'm going to start with Jesus Christ's own words. Matthew 12, 36 to 37. I tell you, On the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. For by your words, you will be justified, and by your words, you will be condemned. Jesus again, Matthew 15, 11. 
It is not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth. This defiles a person. Luke 6.45. I think I've touched on this passage in every sermon I've preached in the series so far. The good person, this is Jesus speaking again, the good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good. And the evil person out of his evil treasure produces evil. If you've got a pen, highlight this part in your, in your, in your verse. For out of the abundance of the heart his mouth speaks. That, that just goes to show, once you squeeze the toothpaste, there's no squeezing it back in. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 4. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place. But instead, let there be thanksgiving. Colossians 4, 6. The Apostle Paul says, Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. A couple more found in uh, the book of James. James chapter 1, verse 19. I think most of you have this verse memorized now by how many times I've referenced this. Know this, my beloved brothers. Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. Verse 26. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. James, he's got a lot to say on this. Last verse, James chapter 3, verses 9 and 10. James is talking about the human tongue, human speech. With it, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it, we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. Brothers and sisters, that's just a sample of what the scriptures have to say about how we ought to speak with one another. Over time, if your aim is to tear a local congregation apart, the best tool that you may employ is an unbridled tongue. Over time, sinful communication in the local church can tear the church apart. But godly speech, godly communication, submission to God's word on how we as his redeemed people ought to live will indeed build itself up. And that's really the main idea of the sermon this morning that we're considering, is that Christian communication gives grace to those who hear and builds up others in love. Christian communication gives grace to those who hear and builds up others in love. Now, why would we want to consider this subject? Why would we want to consider this idea? Because God's communication to you by Jesus Christ has given you grace and is building you up in love. We, in Christ, are not who we once were. We have received grace and continue to receive grace and will forever continue to receive grace to be built up in love into the image of his Son. So, we then receive grace to give grace so that others will be built up, edified, strengthened, built up in love. We're going to spend most of our time this morning unpacking the scriptural instructions for Christian communication in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 25 to 32. So if you have your Bibles with you, turn with me to Ephesians chapter 4. 
If you're new to reading the Bible, feel free to follow along on uh, the screens. I'd encourage you to pick up one of the Black Pew Bibles just right in front of you. Ephesians is in the New Testament, meaning it's in the second part of the Bible. The larger numbers are the chapter numbers, uh, and you'll see that the smaller numbers inside the lines and in the verses are the verse numbers. You can ignore the various tiny little letters thrown out uh, in, in between until a later time, but you'll also find uh, the passage on page 1161 in the Black Pew Bibles. Uh, if you are new to reading the Bible, let me encourage you, uh, there's no shame or embarrassment in asking for help on how to navigate through the scriptures, and I'd also encourage you that over time, uh, with a little bit of practice, you'll grow more comfortable with navigating on how to read the Bible. So hang in there. Read God's Word. It's good for you. Ephesians chapter 4. Verses 25 to 32. This is the Apostle Paul saying, Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. If you're taking notes this morning, we are going to consider from our passage four rules for biblical communication. Four rules for biblical communication that we can employ in our speech and communicating in general that will give grace to others and to build up one another in love. Now, before jumping into those four rules, speech is not the only way that people communicate. I learned that several years ago on an evangelistic mission trip to India. Uh, if you've ever been to India, you'll know that traffic doesn't actually work the way it works here in the West. Uh, the streets are filled with people um, and animals and rickshaws and food stands. Uh, when we were traveling through the streets of India, stopping in various points in various villages, we all noticed something, and me being the only Indian man on our team, uh, one of the observations that the rest of the team saw was people would stare at us. Even driving through the streets on a bus with the windows down, people would stare very intently. And they kind of like furrowed their brow, and they looked almost angry that we were driving through. And the question that we received was, why are people staring at us that way? Well, number one, we're driving a huge bus through their village, so that's going to be one, one point to consider. But number two, that furrowed brow... I learned after the fact, uh, was not a, a look of anger or disdain, but of curiosity. I learned much later, years into being married, that I also furrowed my brow when I would listen intently. When I would closely pay attention to something, someone might misunderstand me to being angry. I went years not understanding that I had a particular behavior that I was completely unaware of that might have given people the wrong impression that I was angry, but I wasn't. So, 
That, that's just one example of how you can speak and communicate something with, not even with words. So when we consider biblical communication, we are not just going to limit it to just speech, even though that is like 90% of what we're talking about. So four rules for biblical communication. Number one, be honest. Number two, speak to reconcile. Number three, speak to edify. Number four, speak to give grace. So four rules, you can write those down, put it in your Bible. I think it'll really serve you well. But before jumping into uh, this particular section of scripture, there's one observation we need to make. This is the end of Ephesians chapter four, which means there are three whole chapters preceding it. The temptation might be that you just jump into the specific action commands in a book like Ephesians and then not pay attention to the rest that preceded it before. If you're visiting with us this morning and maybe you don't identify as a Christian, you might think, well, I, I don't really need to wonder about communication. I, I speak just fine. I, my relationships are fine. That's well and good. But this particular sermon and the subject we're covering, it's not about self-help. The, 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 the primary thing that we need to understand about Christianity is that Christianity is about a person. The Christianity is about Jesus Christ. Christianity is not so much about all the stuff that Christians do. Christianity is about responding to the person of Jesus Christ, either in submission or rebellion. When we see Jesus Christ, those are the two options. We can't look at him and just say, no, Jesus Christ demands a response. The gospel of Jesus Christ is not a self-help message. The gospel of Jesus Christ, unlike the religions of the day and the religions of the past or even the non-religions of the day, the gospel of Jesus Christ does not say, perform your way into the verdict. The gospel of Jesus Christ, in Tim Keller's words, means that the verdict has come before the performance. The gospel of Jesus Christ proclaims good news for people who are desperately aching for good news. The gospel proclaims that God, who is beautiful and perfect and holy and righteous, has created all of creation to reflect his beauty and goodness and holiness. But something has gone awry. Christians call it sin. It's not just one inappropriate behavior. Sin is the default nature that human beings have now because of rebellion against God. We have rebelled against God. We have transgressed. We have broken his commands. And we've broken our relationship with God. Where there was once harmony, there is now enmity. But if the gospel is good news, where does the good news come? Because there is only bad news if we have broken our relationship with God to result in enmity. Our sin deserves punishment. Christianity does not uh, blush and wink away at evil. Christianity alone has the most sober-minded approach and perspective on all of creation and the evil that is in the world. And Christianity alone has the solution. And that solution comes in the person of Jesus Christ. The Bible demonstrates and reveals to us God's love for his creation to send his one and only son to pay the penalty for our sin by dying on the cross. 
there is a reason why some of our songs have imagery of blood and death and a frail man holding a heavy cross. Because Jesus Christ, fully God, fully man, bore the penalty for our sin. He bore the punishment and the wrath that we are due. He is what we call our substitute. He has provided what Christians call atonement. He has paid for our sin in his own body. But Jesus Christ did not remain in an old grave. Jesus, three days later, rose from the dead. He now reigns all, supreme, forever, for all eternity. And if you trust in him, if you turn to him by repenting of your sin and placing your faith, your trust, your confidence in Jesus, you won't receive 12 points to become a better person. You will become a new person. The old will pass and the new will stand by faith in Christ. If that is new to you, if, if this is your first time in church, or, or maybe you've been going to church for a long time, maybe you come to church with your parents and you don't yet believe in Jesus, we should talk about this more after the sermon, because I still have a bunch more pages to get through here. I'll be standing right back there, and I'd be happy to talk to you. Really, anybody that is in the pews here would be happy to talk to you about the good news of Jesus Christ. Well, let's talk about that good news a little bit more. In, in Ephesians, right, we talked about there's three whole chapters Chapters 1 through 3 can basically be summarized as dead sinners are made alive by faith in Christ through God's grace. Chapters 1 through 3 displays the scope of God's eternal plan for humanity. The mystery of God hidden for ages but now revealed and made known not in a particular way of life but in the author of life. The mystery of God, hidden for ages, is now revealed and made known in Jesus Christ. Now, that's the first three chapters. Right? So, in the first three chapters, Paul lays out for you, in very rich language, Christian doctrine. The foundations of Christian belief. It is in the final three chapters that Paul moves to various imperatives. Implications of God's grace in the life of the church. There are 41 recorded commands in the book of Ephesians. 40 of them are found in the final half of uh, this letter. Now, Ephesians chapter 4, it begins by reminding us, Christians, of our calling. This calling that, uh, that God has drawn us near by faith in his Son. He has called us to himself. And we are now instructed to walk in a manner that is worthy of this calling. We are to do this, we're instructed, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Uh, Paul goes on to uh, highlight various gifts that are given to the church, but in verse 15 specifically, P Paul says... Uh, rather than being tossed to and, to and from as children, rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, 
when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself in love. That is a very dense sentence. There is so much packed in here. But to summarize, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 15 and 16, it demonstrates that God's plan for individual Christians to grow in spiritual maturity is the local church. That's God's plan for you to grow. If you are going to grow in spiritual maturity, you're not going to do that by yourself. You may gain some helpful, God-honoring, God-glorifying knowledge, yes, that you get to enjoy in your own silo. But God's plan for spiritual maturity and for Romans 8.29 to be actualized in your life is the local church. The local church is not God's plan B, It is not optional. It is not just a luxurious add-on feature that we can choose to, you know, pay to add. No, no, no. The church is the plan. The church is God's plan A for your growth, dear Christian. Christians in the context of the local church grow in spiritual maturity by speaking the truth to one another in love. And when all the different members and all the different parts are working properly, the whole body builds itself up. Lone Ranger Christianity will be the surefire way for you to not grow. The biggest obstacle in our path to spiritual maturity and sanctification may not be the person or persons around us that we have to uh, live with and navigate and kind of walk on eggshells around. The, The biggest obstacle may just be us. When the whole body is working together, the whole body is building itself up in love. According to Ephesians chapter 4, verse 15, it would appear that the primary vehicle for this to happen is in Christian speech. We are to speak the truth in love to one another for the benefit of the other. When we gather, we sing the truth to each other in an effort to build each other up. Even if the song is not familiar to us, the the deeper aim is that others would hear these truths of the scriptures and be built up and edified. We have conversations before the service and after the service and in the pews and in the halls and in the offices and in each each other's homes and throughout our city in the hopes that we will build each other up. We build each other up when we reflect together on God's word preached during the sermon. The specific avenue we do that is through life groups. You're welcome to come to ours at 1 o'clock this afternoon. We've got Zupa Toscana. We build each other up in the context of the local church, through speaking. Do you see the weight, the weightiness of this responsibility of our speech? This is the vehicle that will be used to mature one another. We mature through speaking the truth in love. Now, as a Christian, God's will for you is to grow in spiritual maturity, and the means that he has appointed for your growth is the local church. But your spiritual maturity, dear brother and sister, is not just for you to enjoy. It is not just for you to enjoy. Your maturity and growth are meant to be enjoyed by yourself, yes, and exercised as a, as a blessing for others to enjoy. 
God intends for you to grow through the local church so that your spiritual maturity will bless others in the church that they may grow. And when they grow in spiritual maturity, they may bless others to grow up into Christ in spiritual maturity. And then that cycle just repeats itself. And it just continues so that when each part is working properly, the whole body grows itself up. That is the beauty of the local church. God's plan A for your sanctification. Now, I promised that we would spend time in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 25 to 32. So that was all just building the ramp for the plane to fly. Let's buckle up in our seats and let's fly the plane. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 25 to 32. So, we read this passage and we're going to consider four rules for biblical communication outlined by the Apostle Paul here. Rule number one, be honest. Be honest. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 25. Paul, in very clear and plain language, says, Therefore, and so all, you know, Ephesians 1 to Ephesians 4, verse 24, all of these things that we've considered, therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. To appropriately and accurately understand this passage, you don't need dense commentaries. If you are in Christ, put away falsehood. Take falsehood, put it on the shelf, never reach back for it again. Speak the truth to one another. And Paul goes on to say, why should we do this? Why should we put away falsehood, rather speaking the truth to one another? Because we are members one of another. If you and I have placed our faith in Christ, we are members of a local congregation we belong to each other. In a practical way, in a, in, a, in a very real way, I belong to you and you belong to me. We belong together as members of one big family. We are members one of another. So if I belong to you and you belong to me and I speak falsehood to you, not only do I harm myself, but I harm you. And if you belong to me, and I belong to you, and we're members together, why would I want to harm someone that belongs to me? We are to put away falsehood. We are to speak the truth with his neighbor. We are to put away all forms of falsehood. So this isn't just saying, hey, when speaking the truth is comfortable and appropriate for you, and you're okay with it, then go ahead and speak the truth. No. Every form of falsehood is to be put away because it is unbecoming of the people of God. You and I are made in the image of a God who does not lie. So when we speak falsehood to one another, when we lie to one another, when we behave in a way that is false, what we're doing is we're taking on and putting on the jersey of the other team and bearing false witness. Bearing false witness of the Lord. We are to put away all forms of falsehood. We are to be honest, even if that means we are going to be embarrassed or ostracized or made fun of by others. So, practically, we are to be honest in our speech at all times. We are to be honest with our taxes at all times. We are to be honest with our timesheets at work at all times. We are to be honest when the police officer pulls us over for speeding, and we clearly know we're speeding, and he asks us, Sir, do you know why I pulled you over? Well, no, officer, I don't. 
No, you put that behavior away because Christ bled for that sin. And you honestly say, yes, officer, I was speeding. I know what I did was wrong, and I will bear the punishment and the penalty. We're to put away all falsehood. In verse 15, Paul says Christians are to speak the truth in love. In verse 25, he finds the need to repeat himself. Christians are to speak the truth. All forms of falsehood are to be put away. Truth characterizes God, while lying characterizes the devil. In John 8:44, Jesus, speaking of Satan, said, He, Satan, was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of all lies. If you are a Christian, if you have placed your faith in Christ, when you speak and you speak the truth, you are demonstrating who your father is. Because if you are a Christian, your father is not the father of lies, but the father of life. And your words, spoken in truth, should give life to others. Now, what are some common examples of falsehood? And this is probably something that we ought to consider. What are some common examples of falsehood? Well, I already said, cheat, cheating on your taxes, cheating on your wife, those are falsehood. Those are examples. Outright deceit is a common example of falsehood. When you explicitly lie to someone, you are not speaking the truth. And if you have to squirm your way to tell the truth, you should probably understand you're on some uncomfortable ground. Outright deceit is common falsehood. Uh, Another example, keeping a secret when it should be disclosed is an example of falsehood. When you are keeping a secret that is clearly wrong, Evil is being done. Harm is being done. Wrong is being done. And you are unwilling to disclose it. That is an example of falsehood. There's a reason why, if you've paid any attention to the news, when the SBC report on abuse and harm came out, and 700-some churches were involved, or 700-some victims were involved, there's a reason why uh, media outlets like the Washington Post and various columnists were so shocked and outraged. Because... People who proclaim a God of moral virtue and righteousness, uh, people who proclaim that uh, darkness should be exposed, were willing to hide a secret that should have been disclosed. Keeping a secret when it should be disclosed is an example of falsehood. Now, uh, another example. This, this This one's a little, it's not as black and white as some other examples. Exaggeration that blurs the truth. Okay, exaggeration that blurs the truth is an example of falsehood. So uh, if you ask me, well, Chris, how long did it take you to craft your sermon? Well, brother, I manuscript everything. It takes hours, I don't know, like 40 hours. When it took me 12, that's exaggerating to the point where it's blurring the truth because 40 hours and 12 hours are completely different. And if I'm speaking in such a way that you actually can't accurately understand what I'm trying to say to you, then I'm probably speaking in a way where something might be false. Exaggeration that blurs the truth. This fourth example, I don't have a biblical proof text for. What I do have is years of experience in this, uh, years of embarrassment in this, and what I believe is uh, uh, Holy uh, uh, Spirit-provided wisdom. And this is also biblical wisdom and counsel that I've received previously in the past. 
we must be very, very cautious with sarcasm. We must be very cautious and careful with sarcasm. Why do, what do I mean by that? Sarcasm can be a very useful and helpful and you know, humor-producing tool in language and rhetoric, right? But how often have people been misunderstood when they are speaking sarcastically? If you have children, speak with sarcasm with your children for one second. Say, say one statement, just a general statement sarcastically, and, and see how they respond. What I've learned is that children are literal creatures, and they take what you say literally, right? And yes, at some point, they may grow into a great development, and they might develop and mature to the point where they become masters of sarcasm themselves, but sarcasm oftentimes will lead to misunderstanding, confusion, even frustration. So, I'm, I'm not condemning sarcasm as a tool of rhetoric, what I am saying is not all of us are Mark Twain. We are not going to make a career out of this. Rather, we should aim and strive to use wisdom from the Spirit of God to remove various obstacles that are in our path to be clearly understood by others. Right? Because when others don't clearly understand us, that is fertile soil for frustration and division. And we should aim and strive to speak clearly and honestly. So if you are in Christ, all forms of falsehood must be put away. Rule number one, be honest. Rule number two, speak to reconcile. Okay, Ephesians chapter four, verse 26 and uh, verse 27. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Not only have I had uh, expertise in sarcasm gone wrong, I've had expertise in anger gone wrong. And so I am not speaking to you as someone who has mastered this. I'm speaking to you as someone who still needs to grow in this. Paul says we're to be angry, which from our previous sermon in this series, we considered anger can be good and right and appropriate. But he also instructs us that we are to not sin in our anger. Right? Most of us can have an appropriate response of anger to wrong or injustice and then very quickly spiral down into sinful anger. So, how should we speak in the midst of conflict? How should we speak in the midst of anger? I remember several years ago uh, sitting in on uh, some biblical counseling, and the, uh, the husband and the wife um, talked about communication issues in marriage, especially in the midst of conflict. They both were the type that when they would get angry, they would kind of just bottle up and they would just kind of hold everything back. They wouldn't talk about it. They wouldn't talk about anything. There would just be the silent treatment in the house. Days would go by, maybe even a week or more, and then the cell phones would come out. And then the well-crafted, long text message to the spouse. And then the other spouse would receive it, and then they would respond. And back and forth. And what was happening was they became angry. They let time go on. They were unable to communicate well to reconcile, and then they would lob grenades of anger and sin via text message. Have you considered all the different ways that we have opportunities to communicate now? How then should we speak in the midst of conflict? Scripture is replete with instructions and encouragement that we should speak in a way that promotes reconciliation. We should speak in a way where we are honest about our own sin, where we agree with God about our sin, 
and we agree with the other that we have offended with our sin to confess our sin and speak to reconcile. The scriptures are filled with uh, uh, encouragements to speak with reconcile. In the midst of our conflict, it's tempting to use our words to attack and tear down. If you're ever in a position of leadership, it's very common to hear from the grapevine people speaking of you in ways where they are attacking you and tearing you down. It's tempting to attack and use our words for harm and destruction, to bring up the past against the other, to say things like, well, you always blah, 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 or, well, you never blah, 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 fill in the blank. But Paul reminds us that we ought to take every opportunity to reconcile quickly and to speak in such a way that promotes reconciliation. Scholars and theologians debate if Paul actually meant that Christians should reconcile with one another before it literally got dark, before it liter- like the sun literally get- goes down. But the point being that Paul's driving home is that reconciliation is the goal. And we should speak in such a way, according to Ephesians chapter 4, that promotes and brings about reconciliation. Jesus, in his Sermon on the Mount, in, chapter, in Matthew chapter 5, he says the same thing. Aim to reconcile quickly. The sooner, the better. Use your speech, brothers and sisters, to reconcile with one another. Uh, one, one piece of counsel that, um, that I have received and have given to others is, when you're speaking, keep current. If you're in the midst of conflict, when you're speaking to someone, the temptation is for you is going to be to bring up the past and all of the sin and damage and harm that was done in the past, you want to bring that up and then attack the other person with it, right? No, no, no. Keep current. Don't bring up past offenses to use it against the person that you're seeking to reconcile with. Identifying a pattern of behavior for the purposes of repentance is appropriate and helpful and can lead to long-lasting fruit. Problems can't be addressed if they're not identified and expressed. So identifying a pattern of behavior can be helpful, but, but, this is a big but, identifying a pattern to attack and wound someone is unbecoming of God's children. Did you know that God does not do that with his children? When you flip through the pages of Scripture, You do not see God pulling out his sword and saying, well, yeah, I love you, but smack. No. God's word speaks life and encouragement. He reminds us that he will not bring our sin up against us anymore because we have the righteousness of Christ robed onto us. We're to use our speech then in a constructive manner to reconcile. So rule number two. Speak to reconcile. They got a couple more rules here. Rule number three, speak to edify. Ephesians 4.29, we're just moving along through the passage here. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. All right, I'm going to take this verse apart. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths. Right? Paul gives us a negative Do not speak this way. Corrupting speech is not to come out of our mouths. Corrupting speech includes speech that we use to tear one another down, to curse one another, to use inappropriate language, or to speak in a way that does not build others up. There is a very funny, long-standing TV show 
on NBC, and you can stream that show right now on Peacock, and there's a long-running joke that the main character says. Brothers and sisters, that joke, which I will not repeat from the pulpit, ought not to be coming out of our mouths. Why? It's not because that he's including curse words, but because it's corrupting speech. And according to Ephesians chapter 5, verse 4, that kind of speech is crude joking. So crude joking, crude talk, unwholesome speech ought to be put away. Not, not because we want to uh, go on some sort of holy moral crusade against the culture. We ought to demonstrate to the watching world around us there is something uniquely different about those people that meet at that building on 15 High Street. They act different. They talk different. They sound different. They're really kind people. That's just weird. Corrupting speech ought not to come out of our mouths. And do you know what else is a form of corrupting speech? Uh, this is a very subtle form of corrupting speech, one that um, almost like uh, 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 the Dark Lord Sauron's ring of, uh, ring of power just is invisible. I've been reading uh, Tolkien with my wife and some dear friends, so forgive that uh, nerdy, um, uh, nerdy example. This is a form of invisible, is almost invisible, uh, of corrupting speech, and that's gossip. Gossip is by nature corrupting. Why do I say that? Gossip seeks to corrupt the image of another person in another person's mind. Gossip seeks to corrupt the image of a person in another person's mind. So let's just say you and I get into conflict, and I'm just so angry and I've got to get it off my chest. So I'm going to justify myself and let some steam out, and I'm going to vent this to another person. And I'm going to tell that person all the things that you did wrong. What am I going to do? I'm going to inevitably spin you in the worst possible way. I'm going to paint myself in the best possible way. And I'm going to strive to win this person to my side. Gossip is going to corrupt and taint the image of the other person and corrupt their mind. There is no upside to being a gossip. When you engage in the act of gossip, there is no benefit and no fruit. Now, in my place of employment, I read my 40-some page employee handbook. Gossip is a cause for termination. That's fascinating. I've never worked at a place that actually said that. So all that water cooler gossip, nope. That's corrupting speech. Put it aside. There is no upside to it. Gossip hurts neighbors, it divides friends, it damages reputations and relationships. The Bible labels gossips as untrustworthy and meddlesome. When we use unwholesome and corrupting speech, we are demonstrating a total disregard for the other person and a complete commitment to ourselves. Corrupting speech in all its forms is almost always used not to attack the problem, but to attack the person. But notice what else Paul says. So not only are we to not use unwholesome or corrupting speech, we're to use speech only in such a way that is edifying. Right? Because Paul, Paul says in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 29, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up. He's giving very clear parameters. Do not speak this way, only speak this way. Don't drive your car on that lane only drive in the lane of speech that is building up. We are to speak in such a way that others are edified. 
Brothers and sisters, the Spirit of God has enabled you to now use your speech in a way that you once did not use before. Your speech has been redeemed to constructively encourage others. Rather than being an expert at finding faults in others and how they behave or how they act or how they speak, rather than becoming an expert at finding faults, use your speech in a constructive way to point out the evidence of God's ongoing grace in the lives of others. Become an expert at sniffing out and finding and seeing God's grace in the lives of others. Uh, Wayne Mack, in his book, Your Family, God's Way, he, he said, Scripture indicates that when people have communicated effectively, they are mutually strengthened, encouraged, and enriched. That is the aim of Christian speech, that others would receive grace from us when we speak to them, that others would be enriched by our speech, that our speech would add value to their lives and their trials and troubles. So a good question to ask question I need to ask myself, a question you can ask yourself and your spouse or a close friend, do my words edify others around me? Doesn't matter if you're generally introverted or extroverted. Paul's concern is words that edify others. Do my words edify others around me? Do my words constructively build up others? If your words do not edify others, which is very possible, there's no condemnation for you. There is encouragement. This is an opportunity for us to identify behaviors that we must put off and identify ways that we must put on the new self. Right? So what behaviors and practices need to be put away, literally put on the shelf, never to be reached for again, so that Christ will be honored and others may be enriched by our speech? Right? Paul doesn't stop there. He's got a lot to say about the stuff we say. Paul goes on to say that our speech must be used for building up as fits the occasion, right? So, if you are speaking to me and you're sharing, me, uh, sharing with me news of uh, uh, loss you experienced in your life, probably not the best time for me to say, hey, I got these new pants on sale that are spandex lined on my waistband, so it's super comfortable. No, that is not fitting the occasion. It's completely inappropriate, right? Paul goes on to say that our speech must be used for building up as fits the occasion. What that means, then, is we must become skilled in learning the skill of listening well. Speaking in a way that builds up as fits the occasion means we need God's wisdom. Not everything needs to be said all at once, but we must learn to speak in a way that is fitting to the occasion. The only way to do that is if we stop talking to ourselves when someone is speaking to us. How often do you find yourselves in the midst of a conversation where someone is speaking to you, but you're just kind of daydreaming about something else? You're thinking about some other conversation. You're thinking about what you should say about this other thing that you're thinking about. No, you cannot speak in a way that builds up as fits the occasion if you do not listen well, if you do not exercise godly wisdom. Remember James chapter 1, verse 19. Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. Speak to edify. Rule number four. I'm going to start landing the plane here now. Speak to give grace. I've, I've said this repeatedly through 
uh, our sermon today. Rule number four, speak to give grace. Ephesians chapter four, verses 31 and 32. So Paul is closing this section by saying, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Verse 32, be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Speak to give grace. Bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, and slander, those may be behaviors and patterns of behavior that identify your old way of life. They may even identify certain practices now. But the scriptures don't say, hey, if you ever fall into this one time, you're no longer a Christian. The scriptures say, take these and put them away. Sin does not like to see itself out to the door. Sin prefers to make a home. These behaviors, these patterns of sin, we are to take them and throw them to the curb, never to look back at them again. But when we do, there is grace for us because the new self is still alive and we are still encouraged to put the old self off and put on the new. In Ephesians chapter 4, verses 31 and 32, this tells us a lot about God. Because we are in Christ, we have experienced God's own kindness towards us. Because we are in Christ and we have experienced his kindness, we are now enabled to exercise kindness to others. We are to be kind to one another. One of the chief ways we express kindness to others is through our speech. So we must exercise kindness in our speech. We're also called to be tender-hearted. Brothers and sisters, God has demonstrated his own tender-heartedness towards you in Christ. God is not hard-hearted towards you. He is not a distant judge that is ruling against you. He is a loving father who has a tender heart for you. And that tender heart will be for you in Christ forever. There's no expiration date to God's tenderheartedness. Therefore, we can then exercise tenderheartedness in our speech to others. It is a complete contradiction if we profess to have faith in Christ, yet treat his saints, whom he gave his life for, mind you, with coldness and antipathy. Our speech ought to demonstrate the similar tenderheartedness that we have received by God the Father. And similarly, Paul goes on. We are to forgive one another just as we have received forgiveness by God in Christ. Our speech must demonstrate forgiveness. When someone seeks your forgiveness, and again, in, in a previous sermon, I encourage you, don't just apologize for sin, actually request forgiveness. Say, I sinned against you by this, will you please forgive me? When their response to your request for forgiveness is tight lips, you don't actually know if they've forgiven you. You don't actually know if they're saying, you know what, you've got this whole ledger of moral wrongs, I'm going to pay for it. The only way to demonstrate that, the primary way to demonstrate that you are willing to forgive is to say, I do forgive you. And every time after that, you will be wronged or will wrong someone else. Speak in a way that demonstrates forgiveness. All right, to land the plane. Four rules to communicate biblically 
in this passage. Four rules that, if employed, will build up the church in love. We are to be honest, put away all forms of falsehood. Be honest. We are to speak to reconcile. We are to speak to edify. We are to speak to give grace. If we apply this prescription given to the church for how we are to communicate with one another, we will enjoy a picture of what's to come because there is coming a day when the Lord will finally and fully renew all things and make all things right and whole again. A day when there will be no more misunderstandings and no more miscommunication, no more awkward silences after heated words, no more sinful conversations, no more hurtful words, no more words of attack and destruction No, there is coming a day when all speech, all of our speech, all of our words will be exercised with peace and joy and love. But until that day, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ has forgiven you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this good news. God, we thank you that we have good news in Jesus Christ. Good news that our sins have been paid for, that our sins have been thrown so far away that you will never use them against us. God, we thank you that uh, we can stand in your presence in peace and joy and reconciliation. And we pray, Father, that by your spirit and by your word and through the mutual edification of uh, your people, that we would continue to grow in this area of personal communication in the church God, we pray that our words would be acceptable before you. We pray that our words would give grace and life and joy and peace to others. We pray that our words would bind uh, wounded hearts. Uh, We pray that our words would be uh, opportunities for others to be filled with hope and rejoicing and thanksgiving. And God, we pray that our words would honor you and honor one another until that day when our words will only be peace and joy and love. We long for that day, and we trust that you will complete the work that you've begun in us. We pray all this now, Lord, in Jesus' name.